If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is my brother from the exact same mother, TJ2, the deuce. Whoa. Uh, that was emphatic. That was, uh, that was visceral. What are you drinking? I don't even know. Yeah, it was just tea. Well, it's good to be back this week. Excellent. Yes. You missed quite the show last week. Yeah. Yeah. We I was in the studio audience. I don't know who that wank guy was. <laughs> Did security not let you on the stage? No, they, they gave me good seats and everything. Got to sit oh. next to the lovely Diane. Her and Johnny were it was getting a little raunchy at the end there. We had to leave. The cops were there. They were it was messy. We think there were some substances involved, but we aren't entirely sure. And Diane's husband was not very happy. They're not invited next year. I watched the whole show because I was in the studio audience. All the jokes about foot polish and all that kind of stuff stayed in. And there was a <laughs> some a reference to someone being raw dogged at the end that hit the cutting room floor. It's interesting where you draw the line. <laughs> Very interesting where you draw the line. We have a new editor and he didn't do that episode. I did it. And that's why the sound cues are probably not that great. <laughs> it's like, yay. And that was it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, we're just going to move on. Wow. <laughs> we have our storyteller for today for our penultimate episode on Lane Staley, Mr. Will the Thrill. <sighs> Greetings and salutations, guys. I'm glad we had a fun episode last week because this is going to be uh, not that. We've been warned. Yes. So before we get into that, I did want to say, mark your calendars, kids, because it's that time of year again. Oh, Yes. When you have the chance to go to Whamhalla, it is officially Whamageddon. Mm -hmm. Upon recording this, we have one day, four hours and nine minutes until Whamageddon 2022 begins. Here are the rules. The objective is to go as long as possible without hearing Wham's Christmas classic, Last Christmas. Rule number two, the game starts on December 1st and finishes at the end of December 24th. Use your local time zone if you like. So that could be at midnight, Eastern Standard Time, whatever. It doesn't matter. But you must set the rules with your group of friends. Third rule, only the original version applies. You can listen to all of the remixes, covers that you want. That's totally fine. The fourth rule, you are out as soon as you recognize the song. Now, here's a bonus rule for you guys out there in Radioland. Make sure that when you do get hit, you head over to either Rock and Roll Heaven Pod on Facebook. Let us know that you got hit. I do believe that we'll probably have a post that you guys can attach your I got hit. Tell us where it happened, how long you got out. You know, it's all that good stuff. Just give us the skinny and the lowdown. Here's the thing. Don't be a jerk. If you know somebody's playing Whamageddon, do not try to send your friends to Whamhalla. It's rude. It's Christmas. Don't be a jerk. Okay? Intentional plays don't count, correct? Like if you hold your phone up and go, I'm playing it. I don't think that counts. Yeah, no, it does yeah. not. You have a bubble around you. You are safe. You will not be sent to Whamhalla. Now, last year, it was the first time, I think in like five or six years that I actually was sent to Whamhalla. And it was, I believe, the day before Christmas Eve. We were in a a sprinter van heading toward the airport and the guy in the sprinter van was playing Christmas music and it popped up. That's correct. So I'm hoping this year we're safe. Well, don't bet on me. I risk of sounding like Pete Rose here of our three hosts. Don't bet on me because in the next four days, I'm going to be traveling. So I'll be in airports. I'll be attending a corporate holiday party. 
And, oh. <laughs> yeah, and so I think I'm in a very high-risk group from the first to the third, so. And I do believe TJ is probably going to get out pretty quick because I think Ashley sets her alarm to Christmas music on December 1st. So Oof. he might get out in like the first five minutes of Whamhalla. It's Russian roulette right there. Yeah, it is. Yet somehow I won last year. You won last year? Yeah, I beat both of you last year. Uh, That's right. Because we both got out in the, the shuttle on the way to the airport. So Yeah, it was not good. Not good. Not good, dog. So I'm hoping this year... I'm putting my Raycons in, not sponsored, but if you want to, hey, Raycon, how you doing? We're here. We're here. We love you. Once you hear the song, Andrew Ridgely shows up at your front door dressed like the Raper. It's real creepy. It is. You know, it wouldn't be as creepy because it would just look like he had a hoodie on, but the scythe is really what does it. All right, so let's get started on Lane because I figured that's going to be about as much fun as we have on this episode. So let's go. Pretty much. So I'd like to just start by saying that there is homework for the next episode. I know some people had asked about this. The set list from Hell from the Great Four of Grunge will be next week. That is your four songs from Soundgarden, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, and Pearl Jam. Four songs by Offshoots and then a four song encore. That is your set for the Legends of Grunge. That is next week, as is the assignment to list your top five Alice in Chains albums. Again, you can do that from any Alice in Chains album. So no solo material here, no offshoot bands, just the core Alice in Chains. And it's excluding, of course, live albums, but Unplugged is on the table. So everything live except Unplugged can be added. So You need to write that down for me, or I'm probably not going to do it because that's like 48 songs. Yeah, it's it's a lot of songs. Yeah, That's hard, and I don't like you. But I'm sure you can do your top five Alice in Chains albums. I'm sure that's easy to do. So, And this will have a trigger warning for a lot of stuff, guys. We're going to cover some very, very dark material here. So please know that if you are triggered by any of the following, depression, drug use, thoughts of suicide, I would say a lot of things pertaining to substance abuse in various categories, this may not be the episode for you. So you may want to sit this one out as we get into the final tragic years of Lane Staley. So... We covered last week the Jar of Flies album, far and away a favorite of mine, as I think we all agreed on. And the year was 1994. Started off well, they got a Grammy nomination, the album was selling well, again, highest selling EP of all time by a single band. And it's about to go over the cliff, guys. So... Alice in Chains is going to take an official hiatus at this point. There was a lot of tension between the band and between their manager, Susan Silver. And if they were going to produce an album, it was largely believed at this point that Alice in Chains would part from their label to produce the album because things were not going very well. Also at this point, Lane and Demery Perot had officially called off their engagement. Now, there are a number of theories as to why this happened. Unfortunately, only the couple knows for sure, and neither of them will be with us. Many attributed to Lane's career. Obviously, he's on the road a lot. He's a musician. They did see other people openly. How the other party felt about this is largely speculation. Also, substances were playing a key role in this. Both were using substances together, including heroin. In fact, as I've mentioned before, many people in the Alice in Chains camp and surrounding Lane blamed Demry for his drug use. I will say it again, though. It was not Demry's fault. Nothing I found in my research, at least, supports that. Were they using together? Yes. So just know that Demry largely gets blamed for it, and I believe it's entirely unfair. Uh, in fact, it's believed that Lane was using even before he met Demry. So there we have that. It is believed that Lane had up to four primary drug connections in Seattle. One of them was a guitar player, actually, in the area named Tommy Hansen. He's the only one of the four who would later come on record after he went straight. And he said, Demery always wanted him to quit. The problem was neither of them were able to. The two attempted rehab several times. Demery's mother, Kathleen Austin, would actually receive a lot of panic calls from Lane when the two would do drugs together. Demery would pass out. There were times when Lane would say, I got to take her to the hospital. She can't even stand up. Her blood pressure is really low. So this was indicating that she was having health complications on top of the substance abuse struggles that she was having. What is known, however, is that Demery was the catalyst for fracturing the relationship. She was the one who officially called it off. She had stopped seeing Lane. She said that the engagement is officially over, and she largely believed that that was to protect Lane and his career. She didn't think them staying together was a good idea. Her mother, Kathleen, backed this up by saying, 
You can't do a relationship and drugs. Nobody can. Lane, of course, loved Emery, and Emery loved Lane, and he was concerned above everything else about her health. Demery would be hospitalized several times for health-related issues that stemmed from the substances that she would be intaking. All of this would actually culminate in the winter of 1994. Now, we're going to get to that later. We're just going to back up a little bit. The family and friends of Demery actually planned a intervention. This is in 1993. Demery's family and Lane went to her house one morning and basically said, we're going to take you to rehab. Demery responded with, and here's a direct quote, you're not fucking intervening me, and I'm not going to rehab. She changed her mind, but eventually she would leave the rehab facility. Demery would make several attempts to get sober. Unfortunately, none of them would stick. Uh, one of them was, in fact, with Lane at the Exodus Recovery Center, which LD, you may know, was famous for admitting Kurt Cobain just before his untimely passing. Is that the one that he jumped over the wall? Yep, in L.A. Yep, that Got it. One. Yep, I remember that. Yeah, so sadly, that didn't work for Lane or Demery either. Both of them went in, they checked out of rehab, but again, went back to utilizing drugs. Demery was, to say the least, not doing well. Her mother, Kathleen, would say that she would throw out quotes randomly like, oh, I'll be dead before you, I'll be dead before I'm 30. You know, kind of a joke, but it wasn't really funny because Demery would be right. Speaking of Kurt Cobain, his death really affected Lane. He wanted to get sober. After Kurt died, he said, you know, I can't keep doing this. I want to get sober. It was just an uphill battle, and Lane would fight as hard as he could. And as we're going to see, he would encounter a lot of pain before he gets to the end. Substance abuse was rampant in the music community, not just Seattle, and nobody was immune. There was one project that was really hoping to get Lane on the right track, and that game compliments of one, Mike McCready, who you may know as one of the two guitar players in Pearl Jam, the other is Stone Gossard. McCready was actually suffering from a heavy alcohol addiction, and it would get so bad that he would play with Pearl Jam and completely forget he was playing. They would say, oh, what'd you do during that set? He would have no idea. So he would black out, basically, on stage, which is absolutely terrifying. McCready would check himself into the Hazleton Clinic in Minnesota to try to dry out, and there he would actually meet a bass player named John Baker Saunders. Now, Saunders was suffering from a heroin addiction, Ultimately, he went to AA with Mike McCready because, as Saunders would say, quote, AA is the only thing that works, end quote. So take that for what it's worth. As the two worked on getting sober together, they shared a vision. They wanted to take a band of musicians that were all sober and make great music. So what did they decide to do? Uh, they pulled together from people they know, of course. McCready had connections with Lane. The first off was Evan Sheely. We mentioned him in our previous episode. He was Mike Starr's bass technician. Sheely also had worked with John Saunders on some projects. Another connection was Mark Lanigan, who was, of course, the lead singer of The Screaming Trees. So McCready contacts The Screaming Trees. He gets Mark Lanigan on board. He gets their drummer, Barrett Martin, on board. And then it's kind of a Live Aid situation where they're like, well, okay, they're in, so are you in, Lane? So, okay. So Lane was obviously a top priority here. Now, if you remember the last episode, Lane's longtime friend, Johnny Bacolis, actually moved in with him to help him sober up. But again, it was nothing but a struggle. Lane had ultimately said, you can't intervene anymore and you can't play any Alice in Chains in my house. Those are the rules. So Lane would often stay awake all night. He would sleep till about four or five in the afternoon, and he became very hard to get a hold of. So eventually, Mike McCready stopped calling. He just showed up with his guitar and hoped Lane was awake, and they'd sit down and kind of pick through some chords. So they did this for a few months, and by the summer, they had a few songs together. In October, October 12th to be specific, of 1994, Mike McCready, John Saunders, Barrett Martin, and Lane Staley would make a public appearance at the Crocodile Cafe, which is located in the Belltown area of Seattle. They had some songs. They obviously had a good pedigree of musicians, but what they didn't have was a name. So, LD, you may like this one. The temporary name they went with was The Gacy Bunch. Aww. Yep. Named for... John Wayne Gacy. Of course, yeah. The Killer Clown. That's... They called themselves The Gacy Bunch, yep. That's, I mean, that's a take on the Brady Bunch, but, like, really disturbing. Yeah, it's a mite, a mite dark, I'd say. Mm. And of course, this was the fall of 1994, which was the same year that saw the release of Best of the Fontana Years, a collection on CD for none other than Manfred Band's Earth Band. <laughs> 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 
All right. Tom, take it away. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Tom McGuinness, and that was your federally mandated Manfred Man reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. That's one of the best things ever. It's brilliant. Oh, my God. <laughs> Greatest part of the show. Thank you, Tom. Hey, thank you, Tom. All right, enough frivolity. Let's get back to it. After this first performance, which, of course, went very well, Mike McCready goes to Lane and says, hey, let's, let's put a demo together. And Lane goes, nah, forget the demo. Let's do an album. So he's getting all psyched up about this. Now, they had rehearsed a little bit. They had a show under their belt. And obviously, these are all talented musicians. The one thing they all agreed on is they couldn't go forward with the name The Gacy Bunch. So according to Mike McCready, he said, it was a joke for five minutes. When the sixth minute hit, it wasn't funny anymore. So the super group, which it really is a super group, if you think about it, you got Mike McCready, you got Lane, you've got John Saunders, you got Baron Martin, Mark Lanigan really a Seattle supergroup, they arrived at the name Mad Season. And that name comes from a time in Surrey, England, when people would actually harvest hallucinogenic mushrooms. So they had a name, they had some songs, into the studio they go in Seattle. This album is just stellar if you haven't heard it. It includes some of the best names in music at that time. I went through the lineup before, but let me throw a few others on there who appeared as guest musicians. We have... Matt Cameron of Guns N' Roses, Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses, and the late Chris Cornell. Anybody we've heard of? Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. Got nothing. Was Donna Summer part of this? If only. She would have been in condition. Tommy James and the Shondells. Terry Webb and the Spiders. No, stop it. <laughs> Bandow Ballet. I know this <laughs> much is true. <laughs> so Mad Season goes into the studio late in 1994, and Lane has not changed stylistically. He still is very private about his recording. He doesn't like anybody to watch him. So he basically goes in by himself to record his vocal sessions. The band does their thing, and he kind of sneaks in late at night to do his stuff. And over the course of those days when he did recording, one of the only people that actually saw him was an engineer for Pearl Jam named Brett Eliason. On March 14th, 1995, Mad Season released their first and only album, Above. One of the most popular singles from that album was actually an adaptation from Lane. Not that he wrote the material. The material is The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, which is actually a collection of poems and essays. It's all about being spiritual and at one with the world. But Lane read it a lot. And he really liked it. And he thought that it really summed up what it meant to be an artist. So the result is our first song, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to share with you. This one comes from the album by Mad Season, Above, in 1995. Let's hear River of Deceit. I don't think you know these guys, right, Rue? I was not real familiar with them, no. I like him.
All right. River of Deceit, mad season. You know what? Hmm. The more the show progresses, the more I really like them. Good. Like they like their early stuff was like super hard, and I really like that song. So like, I like the vibes. Cool. Yeah, no, I like the song. The guitar intro sounds vaguely like Over the Hills and Far Away. A little bit, I like yeah. I think McCready might have pulled, you know, from them. Absolutely. Who I'm sure all those guys were probably influenced by. Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Above album went very well. It actually peaked at number 24 on Billboard and would hit gold status by June of 1995. So wow. clearly no slouch. And we have a fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. <laughs> the cover of the album was drawn by Lane. He actually did a lot of artwork on the Lollapalooza tour. And if you look at the cover that's drawn, that is Lane's artwork. So keep that in mind when next you glance at it. This would be, like I said, the only album by Mad Season. Afterwards, Lane said, I'm going to get clean. I'm going to listen to Mike. I'm going to go into rehabs. He goes to Minnesota. And unfortunately, it is not successful. Mad Season would perform their final show in April of 1995. According to engineer Brett Eliason, who again was in the studio recording above, he said, quote, Lane was not healthy. There was heavy, heavy drug use, which is terrible. He's such a sweet guy and an amazing talent. One of the best singers I've ever recorded. He could just stand out there and light it up. When asked about his drug use during the recording of the album, Lane actually said, I'm either going to drink or I'm going to do dope. And drinking is harder on me. Which is just terrifying. That same year, Johnny Bacolis, Lane's longtime friend, made the decision to move out. He just couldn't watch Lane continue on this path anymore. Lane would actually tell him about how he was thinking about dying. He would tell him about how he was no way out for him. He would actually leave notes in Johnny's bedroom, and they would say things like, there's a black cloud over my house. And he finally said, Lane, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm so sorry. I can't watch you go through this. And so Johnny Bacolis left. Now, we have seven years left for Lane, and this is sort of where you start to see the first of the lasts go in. So Johnny would never see Lane again. We come to 1995. By November of that year, Allison Chains would release the famous self-titled, aka the Tripod album, known for its photo of a three-legged dog on the cover. It was named the Tripod album because Sean Kinney, while growing up, actually had a three-legged dog that would run into his house and terrorize him, and the dog's name was Tripod. So close the door. I know, right? I don't know why that didn't happen. It's not like it can run very fast. You can't get away right. from it. It's a three-legged dog, yeah. Although, I would say, there used to be like a neighborhood dog where I live mm -hmm. who had three legs, and I did call him Tripod. It's and fair. you would be amazed to see how fast that thing could run. <laughs> they adapt quickly. If they miss a single leg, they just go. It doesn't matter. So it is self-titled, but again, most refer to it as the Tripod album. Important note here, because the album does have a photo of a three-legged dog. When they started accepting submissions, the band made it 100% clear. They said, if we believe that this animal has been harmed in any way, we will call the police. They made that perfectly clear. So, allegedly, the dog that you see on the photo is named Mac. But to be honest, the band doesn't really know. And that's because the photographer went to L.A., took a bunch of pictures of three-legged dogs, but the one they went with was actually faxed to them. So, a fax. <laughs> and that's the one that made the album cover, which is kind of funny. Okay. Have you made a phone call in like the last <laughs> year and you get someone's voicemail and it says to leave a message, wait for the tone, mm. to send a fax, press five or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. Who is sending a fax and how through the self? I'm confused. Somebody. Okay. Rock and Roll Heaven Pod on Facebook.com. Uh, tell me how... You fax through a cell phone. I want to see how you get the piece of paper into the charging port. You can just buy fax. No, no, you can't. Don't even try. <laughs> it actually started as a Jerry Cantrell project. So Jerry was kind of working on this. He recruited the drummer from the band Gun Truck, another Seattle outfit. Toby Wright was actually tapped to do the producing of the album, who had worked with Lane with Mad Season. The reality of it is that Allison Chains was really wanting to get back together and record again. So Jerry even said, quote, to be honest, I'm too much of a sentimental fuck. I didn't want to play with any other band. I didn't feel I could put something else out there that would top anything that Alice in Chains could do together. So, Lane's back. 
Now, this is right when Mad Season is sort of running. So he's sort of playing double duty. And as we know, Lane kept weird hours. So Toby said that Lane would often arrive in the middle of the night. He would sit in the studio lobby and write lyrics. He would do some drawing. And then in the wee hours of the morning, he would record. And again, nobody else would be there. Which, okay, creative process, whatnot. But it took a long time to get the album out, to say the least. It took months. And of course, Lane was using substances at the time. According to the producer, he said that it was very apparent when he was using because, quote, when you lock yourself in the bathroom, it's not because you like the bathroom. But what Toby would go on to say is that when Lane was ready to sing, he was ready to sing. It was game time every time. So Lane was fully aware of his habit. He was very conscious of it. And he was doing everything he could to make it not interfere with the album. So the album comes out in 1995. and was careful in selecting a song from this one. I did go with Brush Away, which we'll hear in a moment. Hey, Will, sorry to interrupt you, but we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And we're back. Thanks, DJ. Let's get back to the final years of Lane Staley. This one, I think, was written by Jerry, but it captures the flavor of the album, and I tried to go into a place that you may not know with this one. So let's hear from the 1995 release, Alice in Chains, affectionately known as Tripod Album, here is Brush Away. Aww. Looking at the picture, he's a really cute dog. Mac, or supposedly Mac? Yes. Aww. Away. That sounds like Nirvana. Yeah, it kind of does. 
a little harder. Well, Nirvana had a hard edge to them too. Yeah. Good comparison. Thank you. And that was obviously not the most well-known track. The number one single off that one, maybe TJ Unit's one, was Heaven Beside You. Right. A little bit slower. Grind, another one. I mean, this was a metal album. This was very different from, you know, this is more like their older stuff, I think. So the album actually goes and debuts at number one in November of 1995. So they go straight to the top. Instantly, Rolling Stone gets called. Susan Silver brings in a writer named John Wiederhorn to do an interview with Alice in Chains. And this is where some controversy really starts to get stirred up. He interviews the band members, but he obviously spends a lot of time with Lane. And he asks about his drug use. And Lane is quite candid. Here's a quote from that article. I wrote about drugs, and I didn't think I was being unsafe or careless in writing about them. I didn't want fans to think dope was cool. But then I'd have fans come up to me, give me a thumbs up, and tell me they're high. That's exactly what I didn't want to have happen. Now, this wasn't the big controversy. When the story was released, it was entitled The Needle and the Damage Done. And instead of a photo of the entire band, it was just a photo of Lane. So there was a lot going on there because the band is like, what are you doing? And Lane's addiction is obviously now the centerpiece. It's not about the band anymore. Susan Silver's not happy. Lane's not happy. The band isn't happy. And it sort of overshadowed the fact that Lane wasn't the only one who was using substances at the time. We know Sean Kinney had problems with alcohol. Mike Starr had substance abuse issues. In fact, Jerry Flatow came out and said, we were all on something. So clearly there was a lot going on in the band at that time. Just for starters, they executed what I like to call the old Stefani. <laughs> like, took a picture of the whole band and then just cropped the rest of them out. I was literally like, that just gives so much no-speak vibes. Yeah, and imploded the band. But then you're going in to do a story about the band, and then you end up making the entire focus of it one guy's drug addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's... I just... I don't like that. Make it clear that that's your intent when you get there. And then... You exclude the fact that everybody else is dealing with stuff too. And then what does that do to Lane? Yeah. To have that splashed and become a big national story. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't hiding the fact that he was using drugs, but to have that be the centerpiece of a big Rolling Stone story, that couldn't have been very helpful. No, and I think it fuels a lot of what Lane was saying in that quote. He's like, you know, I'm talking about this, but it's not the effect I want to have on our audience. And now they're just splashing it out there. It's just, yeah. It's very controversial, I think. Ah, so we go forward into the Unplugged album, which I think, I don't know, we've talked about Unplugged at length, but I do put Alice in Chains in one of the best Unplugged sets ever done. One of the best. Obviously, I think Nirvana is just amazing. But um, this one would actually come out in 1996. MTV approached Alice in Chains and said, you guys want to do an Unplugged set? So they're like, sure, we can do it. So they go to New York in April. And they're going to record at the Brooklyn Academy of Music at the Majestic Theater. Now, this is the photo that LD, I think you stumbled upon, where Lane has the dyed pink hair and it's kind of cropped and he's wearing sunglasses. Uh, yeah, I think that was the last episode I posted that picture for the episode. Sure. That's actually him on stage for the Unplugged show. So that's exactly what he looked like at the time. He wore the sunglasses because he was so high constantly that he had to hide his eyes. He also wore long sleeves because his arms at this point were just totally riddled from the drug use. Lane was shooting up between rehearsals, according to those close to him. On top of all of this, on a somewhat funnier note, Jerry actually got food poisoning right before they went on stage. So they actually put a bucket next to him that he could use if he had to call time. So this obviously was... Not good. In fact, the band members said there were times when it seemed like Lane was kind of fading out during the show. Like he would look like he's about to fall over and then he'd catch himself and come back to it. So the Rolling Stone definitely put the cat out of the bag and there's no putting it back at this point. And now they're doing the show where anyone who would have seen an unedited version would know he was very high during their performance. Vocal's still strong though. He could get out there and he could still, he could still kill it. The performance aired on May 28th of 1996, the album that followed that year, a little later in the summer. Went to number three, and like I said, it's considered one of the best MTV Unplugged of all times. I don't have a song from this one, just because it's all songs we've pretty much heard up to this point. But if you haven't heard the Unplugged, please do so. You've got some stellar versions of some Alice in Chains materials. Again, Lane's vocals are on point. He gets it done, absolutely. So, Alice in Chains is back on top. It's time to tour again. So Susan Silver is thinking, okay, what can we do? How can we get him out there? So they actually pair them up 
with someone you met, LD, Kiss. To be fair, I met a part of Kiss. You met half of Kiss. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, that's why I met half of Kiss. Yeah, the best half, in my opinion. Aww. So uh, you met half of Kiss. So just, so just like Jane's tongue, or <laughs> well, there, there's that too. Let me just say, I spent three days with Gene, and it was interesting. He was a character, wasn't he? The first day was like sex jokes. He stuck his finger in my mouth, and then like. The next day, he was like, well, you have to diversify your 401k plan. If you don't diversify your portfolio, you will fiscally never recover from being a background actor. I'm like, oh. okay. He goes, and here's the other thing. The best thing for a woman to do financially is get a divorce. Best thing my wife ever did. Well, with him, I mean, <laughs> makes sense. This is an interesting three days. I Go watch the movie. Why him? You'll Why see my <laughs> Bright, shiny face. Oh, that's right. A Christmas sweater, no less. So the upshot here is Sean Kinney, massive Kiss fan, absolutely loses his mind to go on tour with Kiss. Loves it. Bad side. The band's pretty much stretched to the limit at this point with tension. Lane has obviously been put up as the poster boy. His substance abuse issues are all over the place. He's arguing with Jerry, and we know those are two of the main creative forces in the band, which are now butting heads. And despite the fact that Lane is trying to get through these shows, he's just struggling. I mean, the substances are just taking over hour by hour and day by day. By the time they take the stage in July in Kansas City, Missouri, Susan Silver actually goes to the engineer just before they go on stage and says... I think this is the last time we're going to see these guys together on the same stage. She would be right. Immediately following the show, Lane would overdose. He's rushed to a hospital in Kansas City. He recovers, but that was pretty much it. The band said, we can't keep going. We've got to stop. Now, at this point, Lane is all over. He's trying to get sober. He's struggling. He can't do it. He starts to get really paranoid. He starts to push people away. He would see Demery every now and again. And like we said, she would be hospitalized several times. And Lane would go with her. But he really avoided the public actively at this point. And that's just a trend that's going to continue well into his final days. Speaking of Demery, she actually was diagnosed with endocarditis. Not sure what that is, but it doesn't sound very good. That sounds like something with the heart. Yeah. Am uh, well, I the heart, it? The heart, she actually has several valve replacements that she had to go. Oof. Yeah. So she's not, and remember, she was a petite girl. She was very little. So her frame is just punished by all the years of substance abuse. And again, unfortunately, she and Lane just can't, they can't kick it. Uh, by mid October, Demery actually stopped in to see her mother, and her mother wasn't home. And so she actually sees her mother's roommate at the time, drops off a card, and says something to him, which sort of stays with this person for a very long time. She basically said something is going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. October 28th, 1996. is on her way to a grocery store. She goes with a friend to pick up a few items. At 7.30 p.m., she becomes unconscious in the car. They quickly call an ambulance. She's rushed to Evergreen Hospital, which is in Kirkland, Washington. And in her previous trips to the hospital, she was obviously struggling, but she always found a way. She had her spunk. She had her attitude. She's always saying, you know, ah, this isn't going to, you know, she, but this was very different. Her mother said she was always a fighter, but this time when she went to the hospital, she just got a bad feeling. They put her on life support. And after a number of hours, it became very clear that the life support was the only thing keeping Demery alive. 12 hours, this continues. The doctor finally says to Kathleen, would you like to be present when I disconnect the equipment? Oh, God. To which Kathleen responds, there is no reason for me to be there. My daughter is already gone. Jeez. Yeah. Kathleen would talk about Lane and Demery's relationship, and regardless of what anybody thought and everything else, they loved each other. She said, when they broke up, they never stopped loving each other. They loved each other dearly. Lane was not there, and somebody had to tell him. Susan Silver got together with Lane's stepfather, Jim Elmer, and they went to Lane's apartment. Now, at this point, Lane is, again, becoming very reclusive. So there are times when he just wouldn't be at his apartment. He would be there, but he wouldn't answer the door. He didn't really know. But they showed up, and they said the look on Lane's face, he already knew. How? Not sure. 
but he was absolutely devastated. And he kept saying to them, I should have gotten us out of here. I had the money. I could have done it. I should have gotten us out of here. Demery Perot passed away from complications due to prolonged drug use on October 28th at 7.40 a.m., 1996. The coroner cited an acute intoxication from several substances, the majority of which were opiates. She was only 27 years old. And that was it for Lane. At that point, he just got out of society almost altogether. He would only leave his apartment for the essentials. And like I said, Lane's sightings became fewer and fewer and fewer. Even the people he would maintain contact with, like Kathleen Austin, faded away. He actually phoned her a few weeks after Demery passed and asked for one of her teddy bears that she had. And Kathleen says, yeah, I'll bring it to you. But every time she went to his condo, Lane just wasn't there. He didn't answer the door. Oh, God. Nobody, nobody really knew. And this would become very common for six years. This is 1998, folks. So, no, sorry, 1996. So we got six years left. Kathleen Austin would say, even until the present, Lane never recovered from losing Demery. Now, Lane, as we all know, was very successful. Uh, one of the things he purchased was a condo in Seattle. And he had, no question, a lot of money. As he said, he had a lot of money. Uh, he actually had a trust. So for those of you who like to pinpoint celebrity aliases that they use, check-in hotels and whatnot. If you were around in the early 90s, mid-90s, and you ever were at a place with John LaRusta, that was Lane Staley. That was his alias. In fact, he created the LaRusta Trust to purchase his condo, to handle all his finances. And what this did was basically created a layer between Lane and the rest of the world. So he could live in his condo, the accountant would pay out the bills, he could do his thing and just kind of be left alone. So it was clear that Allison Chains was pretty much done at this point. There was really nothing to get Lane back on track. He would go out wearing actually disguises. I know it sounds funny, but it's really sad. Like he would try to wear hats, wigs, sunglasses. He just didn't want anybody to see him. He never said he wanted to tour again. Mad Season was done. Allison Chains was pretty much on an indefinite hiatus. They tried to get Lane going again. Toby Wright tried to get Lane to be creative again. So Lane set up a recording studio in his own home and they said, okay, well, we can start recording there. So they kind of played around, did a few sessions. One of the collaborators, Jason Bettino, actually said Lane had completely changed, where his vocals had some power and depth. He was soft. He was quiet. He wasn't Lane anymore. His former manager, Randy Biro, as we talked about, who had substance abuse issues, dropped in on Lane, and he actually asked Lane if he had anything. And suddenly Lane just stared at him and said, yeah, but I'm not giving it to you. And Randy said, what are you talking about? He's like, you got clean. I'm not going to be part of this. If you need to do that, you can go do it somewhere else. I don't want you to end up like me. With that, Randy Biro left. He would actually be brought up on charges several years later and wind up in a San Diego State Penitentiary. But that day in 1997 was the last time Randy Biro saw Lane. By 1998, they were trying to do some more recordings and hopefully just get Lane out doing something that he loved to do. In fact, this was the time when there was a band we, I think, all like, The Offspring. Pretty positive on The Offspring? Yes? No? Maybe? Sure. Yeah. Fun little rock band. Yeah. So they were actually recording in Seattle at El Dorado Studios. And they said, okay, well, you know, it's Lane's birthday because it was August 22nd. Let's, let's bring in Lane. We'll do some recording. We'll have a cake. You know, it'll be fun. So the guys in Alice Chains all agree they're going to go and they're going to get set up there and Offspring will be there. It'll be a good time. It'll be a reunion also because they were going to bring in everyone who worked on the Dirt album minus Mike at this point who had been removed from the band as we discussed. And somehow Lane says he's going to show up. According to those present, they said Lane didn't arrive until three o'clock in the morning. His hair was down past his shoulders and he was wearing a Dallas Cowboys jacket. Okay, Problems. Yeah, nobody wears a cowboy's jacket. Boo. Yeah, there's something wrong with you. One of the engineers, Brian Carlstrom, had actually worked with him previously, and he said when he saw Lane, I quote, didn't even recognize him. He looked like an 80-year-old man. He had no teeth. I was shocked, to say the least. Lane wanted to do his vocals right then and there. He said, I'm ready, let's go. The rest of everybody had been there all day. So an argument breaks out. The producers are saying, no, let's come back tomorrow. Lane's like, I can't do tomorrow. My sister's getting married. And Jerry steps in. He's kind of like the stern parent. He's like, Lane, come on. It escalates, it escalates. And they said Lane actually was about to cry. He got so upset. The situation got all the way up to Sue Silver, who gets a phone call. Now, here's the weird thing. Lane's sister 
had gotten married three months prior. But he was saying he couldn't record the next day because his sister was getting married. We still really don't know the root of this, but some have theories that it was to get more drugs, there's something going on with him. We don't really know. But at the end, they finally convinced Lane that he could do his recordings another time, that they would just do this and get something out there because they needed to. And so they recorded two songs. I'm going to share one of them with you. One is Died. The other is Get Born Again. Now, Get Born Again would appear on Nothing Safe, The Best of the Box, which is sort of an Alice in Chains greatest hits collaboration collection, whatever you want to call it. So I'm going to share with you one of those songs, and I want you to hear the vocals of Lane Staley and what was going on with him. So let's take a quick listen to Get Born Again from Nothing Safe. Here it is.
you can hear the work they're doing to to boost his voice. It's obvious. Yeah, and that's much darker. Yeah. In my opinion, you're almost losing his voice. Like the, it sounds like the guitar is the forefront, and his vocals mm-hmm. are pushed back a little bit. Yeah. Also, they had to. Um, I didn't mention this before, but when they were recording, they actually had to change some of the lyrics because Lane's tooth loss. He had a lisp. Oh wow! So they actually changed lyrics so to to help him out. Yeah. Um, I, I considered playing this song over another, which is LD, the one that I think we talked about maybe a couple weeks ago when we watched The Faculty. There was a cover on there of Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 with Lane, Tom Morello, Raising Against the Machine, Martin DeNoble, and Stephen Perkins for the, the Class of 99 was the band, where you can hear him lisping through the entire song. It's it's just sad. That's why I didn't want to play it. It's just, it's heartbreaking. But that was on the Best of the Box compilation, which would come out in June of 99. That included all the hits that we know and love, Man in the Box, I Stay Away, Got Me Wrong, Down in a Hole. Those two songs were added as sort of an addition because they were that was the time when you'd release the greatest hits and go, oh, these songs are only available here. But the important thing to know about Get Born and Died are they are the last two songs that Lane would ever record with Alice in Chains. In that same year, Lane would have another devastating personal loss. In January of 99, John Saunders, his bass player for Mad Season, would pass away from a heroin overdose at the age of 44. So I just want to look at that outfit for a second. So we look at the collaboration for Mad Season. We have Mike McCready, Barrett Martin, John Saunders, Lane Staley, Mark Lanigan, Chris Cornell, Duff McKagan, and Matt Cameron. Half of them are gone. Half of those people are gone. It's just staggering. Unbelievable. In the summer of 1999, Alice and Chains did a spot on Rockline. Jerry and Mike were invited. This is Mike Inez, not Mike Starr. And Sean was actually away on some kind of touring. He agreed to call in, but Lane never booked it. So he just, they assumed he wouldn't do it. Lane actually called halfway through the show as like a guest caller and just joins the interview. So... At this point, it was kind of like a glimmer of hope. It's like, oh, Lane's here, you know. He's going to record with us. But it really didn't seem that way. It was, in fact, he told Sean Kinney kind of on the side, he said, I'm never coming back. I'm not going to quit doing drugs. I'm going to die like this. This is it. That's what he told Sean. By 2000, Lane was pretty much in hiding full-time. If anyone did see Lane, they knew he wasn't well. He had actually contracted hepatitis due to his... Usage of intravenous drugs. His teeth were pretty much all gone at this point. He had abscesses all over his arms from the needles, and it looked like gangrene was starting to set in. He had his routine. He would go to three places. He would go to the grocery store to get food, although at this point, they said the only thing he could eat was Ensure, because it was liquid. He would go to Petco to get supplies for his cat, Sadie, and he would go to the local Toys R Us because he liked video games, so he would go buy video games. But that was it. No one ever really saw Lane anywhere else. People started documenting their final appearances with Lane when they would see him. One of his friends, Nick Pollock, actually ran into him at a supermarket in Seattle. And again, it was all the same. He said he had no teeth. His skin was gray. He looked like a skeleton with the skin hanging off. If he weighed 100 pounds, I would have been surprised. He looked like a dead man walking. Heart member Ann Wilson, as we remember, she was the former Mrs. Cameron Crowe, was actually very good friends with Lane. And she had a party in 2000, which Lane surprisingly showed up to. He stayed until everyone left. And the two of them are out back by her pool, kind of looking up, and a shooting star went by. And Lane actually said, do you have any idea how rare that is for a meteor that big and bright to come close to us? Can you believe it, Anne? We are really lucky. You and me. We are really lucky. Actually, Lane was quoted as saying, Heart was the best band to ever break out of Seattle. That's a quote from Lane. Red Hot Chili Peppers guitarist John Frusciante actually went to Lane's in the hopes of getting him sober. He brought with him a very well-known counselor named Bob Forrest. They did an intervention. The two left. Frusciante and Forrest stood for a moment. Bob Forrest looked at him and said, he's not going to come out of this. And John Frusciante sadly agreed. In Christmas of 2001, Lane would go see his family with an armful of presents. Jim said for him to show up and get himself together enough would be a lot. I don't know what it was like for him mentally, but when he did show up, he was funny, he was sweet, he was on his game, he was just like I remember him. In February of 2002, 
Lane's sister, Liz, as we mentioned her marriage earlier, she actually gave birth to a little boy named Oscar. Lane was in horrible condition, but he had to see Oscar. He went over and he was smiling. He was holding Oscar. He was playing with him. And this was through everything. And he looked absolutely ragged, but he had to see his nephew. The family snapped a photo of Lane holding his nephew, just beaming with pride. That's the last photo of Lane that was ever taken. Ah. Yeah. Man. I don't know why that hits me so hard, but oh my God. Like, I mean, he was a good person. Uh, However, few final meetings are as poignant as the one that took place between Lane Staley and Mike Starr. April 4th, 2002. It was Mike Starr's birthday. So he said, Hey, Lane, it's my birthday. Want to come hang out? Lane says, Okay. He goes to his apartment. Immediately, Mike looks at him and says, You're going to die. Lane says, eh, I'm sick. It's like, no kidding. So they sit down on the couch and they're just kind of hanging out. And Lane suddenly says, hey, Mike, um, Demery visited me last night. Mike says, what are, you, what are you talking about? Are you losing your mind? He's like, yeah, she, she came and saw me. You know, she, she was here. And Mike says, okay, you know, you're, you're not well. And he says, and I quote, I'm going to keep you alive. He reaches for the phone. Lane says, what the hell are you doing? Mike says, I'm going to call 911. Lane says, don't do it. Mike says, you're dying. Lane says, don't you make that call. And he says, if you call, I will never speak to you again. Mike just gets frustrated. He's like, fine, I'll just leave. He's heading for the door when Lane stops him and says, not like this. Don't leave me like this. Mike was so mad, he just storms out. Not knowing at the time that those are the last words Lane would say to anybody. Oh my God. April 19th. On April 19th. Now, several things tipped people off that something was wrong with Lane. His accountant noticed that no activity had taken place on his account for two weeks. Now, he was reclusive, but he had his routine. He knew he would take out money to go to the store. He would take out money to go to the Petco, take out money to get video games, but suddenly the withdrawals just stopped. No money was moving. Some of Lane's neighbors actually said they could hear Sadie meowing loudly, and Sadie was a quiet cat. And then suddenly the noises stopped. Nothing was coming from Lane's condo. So the accountant calls Susan. Susan starts calling the band. Sean Kinney freaks out. He's like, I'm going to go there. I'm going to kick that GD door in. And Susan's like, okay, let's, let's call his family. So she calls Nancy. Nancy immediately heads to the building. Susan runs in too. She calls 911 from the front of Lane's complex. Jim Elmer went as well. The police were authorized to do a welfare check. They get up to the unit, and they're authorized to break down the door. The door breaks down. The TV is on. In the apartment are some paints, a few stashes of cash, some drug paraphernalia, and Lane was on the couch. He had already started to decompose. In his right hand was a loaded syringe. Jesus. Lane normally weighed like 150, 160 pounds. When they weighed him, he was 86 pounds. Oh, God. Nancy pushed her way past the police. She sat on the couch next to her son, and she held him. And she cried and said she was so sorry. She said that she let him down and that she'd never wanted it to turn out like this. But she said she was happy that now he was free and he didn't have to suffer anymore and he would have no more pain. Jim told Lane that he loved him and that Demery was waiting for him. Lane's cat, Sadie, was still alive. She was very hungry and skittish, and she ran away as soon as the police broke down the door, but she was okay. They coaxed her out. Jerry Cantrell adopted Sadie. He took her to his ranch that he purchased in Oklahoma, and I'm happy to say that Sadie would spend the rest of her days living at Jerry's ranch. On April 20th, a public visual was held at the International Fountain in the Seattle Center. Attendance was well over 200 people, which included Jerry Cantrell, Sean Kinney, Mike Inez, Susan Silver. Kinney spoke saying, my heart is broken. I've lost friends, but this, and he couldn't continue. He just broke down. Mike Starr would be haunted forever by that final meeting. He said that not calling 911 was the biggest regret he would ever have. He said, quote, I should have made the call. I would rather have Lane never speak to me again than the world miss out on such a wonderful man. 
And then he would go on to say that he believed that Demery was actually there that day. He said that she went to see Lane for the last time and said, it's okay. You can come over. It's all right. Susan said that she loved Lane. Quote, I loved him and I will always love him. He was like a brother to me. He was this little broken but gentle spirit. At the time, Randy Bureau was serving time in a San Diego penitentiary. He saw a broadcast, Seattle Rockstar dies of heroin overdose. He immediately broke down and said, oh my God, please tell me it's not him. It's not Lane. Alex Coletti from MTV's Unplugged said, Lane was truly a beautiful man. He was gifted beyond compare. He was my favorite singer of the 90s. At the time, Pearl Jam was working on the Riot Act album. As we know, Mike McCready had worked with Lane on Mad Season. Eddie Vedder heard that Lane had passed. And on that day, he sat down and wrote a song. It was called 42002. And it was dedicated in the memory of Lane Staley. A private service was held for the family and those close to him on the 28th of April. Lane was cremated, according to his wishes, and the ashes were presented to his mother, Nancy McCallum. A local rehab center accepted donations on behalf of the family. The medical examiner had determined that the cause of Lane's death was acute intoxication caused by a speedball, which is a mixture of cocaine and heroin. Due to the time frame, again, they found him on April 19th. His actual date of passing was April 5th. 2002, exactly eight years to the day after we lost Kurt Cobain. Wow. Lane Staley was 34 years old. And that's where we end, folks. There will be a follow-up episode to this one because there is a postscript, but we're not going to play a song on this one. This is the silent clock. Instead, I want to put out a message. If you or someone that you love is struggling with addiction, please reach out. If you are in the Seattle area, there is the Lane Staley Memorial Foundation, which is connected to the Therapeutic Health Services Organization. You can donate to their cause at ths-wa.org, or you can call them 24-7 at 833-278-4357. On the nationwide level, there is also the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, available 24-7 at 800-662-HELP. I don't think there's anything left to say. If you would like to reach out to us, please do. I will leave our social handles in the show notes. I will just say, if you need help, please reach out. Travis, would you like to say anything to the audience? Bye, everybody. You guys take care of each other. We love you all. Please tune in next week for the final episode of Lane Staley. What would you like to close out for us? Yeah, just, uh, I think we got it all. We lost a legend that day. We lost someone who struggled and dealt with a lot of pain. And we lost a good man. I think that's one thing everyone can agree on. So again, those resources are there. Uh, we'll probably include them on our page. There is help available. Please know you are not alone. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.